Welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host as always, Shane LeMaster. This is segment number two with our guest, Cody Weiss. Cody and I um, have been talking um, on the podcast already, and we've covered a number of topics, very interesting, and I wanted to um, continue with Cody, so Cody's been gracious enough to stick around. Uh, for this bonus segment. So for those of you who are listening to the podcast, you're getting a nice little bonus segment for your uh, morning or afternoon drive, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Um, so welcome back, Cody. It's only been five minutes since we stopped the, the, the podcast last yeah, time. Thanks for keep yeah. for pushing it back. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were talking about um, what it is like for a neuroscientist to conceptualize consciousness. And... Um, one of my favorite people to follow these days is Elon Musk. Yes. And um, he, I heard him on the Joe Rogan podcast recently. I know you did too because we talk about, yeah. about that podcast often. But um, he was talking about this thing very related to your field, a product he's developing called the Neuralink. And the way he described it, it was an implantable device that was, he was proposing would be implanted into your brain and somehow be able to interface um, between the brain and a computer system, um, or a brain and an AI system. I don't know if it's meant to um, give it commands or interact in a conversation-wise, but there's lots of possible future implications for this, yeah. right? I think initially he said he wanted to develop it to help treat um, severe um, organic brain issues, uh, which could be really cool. Yeah. Again, learning how to tap into the power of our brain and our mind to heal itself, uh, maybe with a little bit of technological advancement, yeah. um, little some some tools, um, but then he also wanted to eventually expand it into um, optimizing human performance, and that's that's my jam right there is yeah. optimizing human mental performance. And he said that this Neuralink could definitely do some of that stuff. He didn't give many details, but um, for you being um, you know in school in this field, you're you must be up on current theories and, and research uh, similar to this what are your what's your take on this idea of the Neuralink hmm yeah you what's crazy is when I started as a neuroscience major I figured that oh the further into school I get the more I'm going to learn the more people are going to know and what I'm finding is that's not the case it's actually the opposite people are like oh, we don't even know how a vesicle is transported back in this way or how they're recycled or we don't know what this one cell does in the brain what we kind of do and i'd be really interested how he's gonna cross that gap Mm -hmm. it's so interesting you said that too because i think the deeper i get into any subject at all yeah uh, so i always go in with questions right yeah i want to figure out this this and this and then i get those questions answered but by the time i come back out of my research i always have 10 times more questions than when i started it's like i went in to learn more but what i learned is that we don't know shit Exactly, exactly. That's what I think about neuroscience. I remember when I came freshman year, I thought I was hot shit. I thought I was basically an MD with an AP <laughs> bio class mm-hmm. on my belt. But now that I've taken neuroanatomy, neurobio, biological psych, I don't know anything. And I would make a strong argument that even people with their PhDs yep. in neuroscience don't. The whole field. Much. Yeah. The whole field of any field doesn't know more than like one percent of what's out there yeah exactly mm-hmm. so elon musk that dude's a wizard so if anyone's gonna do it i'm sure he could figure something out but i would have to guess from what i know of neuroscience that's 
20, 30 years out. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if it came out soon. Uh, he he did say he was an alien. Probably. Yeah. So who knows? But the idea of a neural link, I think, has been in sci-fi for a long time. Yeah. Um, we've even had some some prototype type devices that have come out to sort of engage that process like the google glasses and stuff where it tracks your eyes and sees what you're looking at and translates and sort of plays with your senses a little bit um virtual reality um augmented reality you know these side sort of neural links um but do you think that something like that if it was implanted would that be more of an electrical signaling, or would that I'm be a chemical guess. signaling? I have to guess electrical signaling. Electrical, right? Yeah, because in the brain, I know for the central nervous system, you have astrocytes wrapped around that synaptic cleft. Mm-hmm. So you would have to like try to get something through the astrocyte, astrocyte to then get into the synaptic cleft, or just straight through the neuron. But if we don't know, I would say, yeah. 90% of what goes on in a neuron, then I don't know how he would do that. I would think, like, just electrical stimulation to stimulate the neuron, because there are, I think Radiolab did something like that, where they stimulated this one woman part of her brain where they did it before, where she was, I think, shooting a rifle and was not doing well because she's not a sniper. Mm-hmm. But I think they then used an electrode to stimulate part of her brain or something like that, or maybe it was TMS. But then she was just like a sniper, just Mm -hmm. hitting targets straight dead on. So maybe if you did something along those lines, I could see it. Sure. The only problem with that that I see, and I've seen studies too where um, like electrocranial stimulation, where you can stimulate certain parts of the brain with either electricity or magnetic frequencies to alter and and improve things like depression anxiety things like that but that's very very targeted and the science as far as the targeting of which neuron clusters have to do with this thought and which neuron clusters have to do with that emotion the 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 jury's out on that like everything's interconnected and memories are are dispersed all over the brain you know so it, it would be nearly impossible for a scientist to say like every single person at this juncture in their brain has this specific yeah. synaptic cleft that if we alter that that it will make them a world-class sniper yeah right so i think that would be very difficult um yeah i don't and then like genetic differences like mm-hmm. that's not even a factor in this conversation then you yeah you'd have to run their genome which in today like that's just 23 me that's pretty easy but then you would have to find where those cells wire to I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that. It's interesting work. though. But think about the implications for that. Like, oh, super great! If you were to figure it out, like, what are what are some cool things you yeah. think we could do with that? Oh, I even think like the first thing that comes to my mind is like Parkinson's. If you were to mm-hmm. do something like that to where the substantia nigra could create more dopamine, you know, or the cells from dying, that would have. That's just one. Mm-hmm. That's not even the big one. Alzheimer's. That's just Parkinson's. And if you could figure out something like get a cell to not cut amyloid plaques off in a way that causes those, you know, plaques, or you could figure out with CTE, mm-hmm. you know, if just stimulating the brain to heal itself every day, if that was like part of your recovery or training, mm-hmm. that'd be cool. That would, 
anyone could play football at that point when it matter if you sure. could just train your brain to heal itself but i don't i'm scared i'm super skeptical about sure. that i think the way musk was talking about it initially were applications for like his uh auto driving car like having some sort of neural link to your car that that um you could use to give it some sort of command like i need to go here take this route um or something like that um yeah it's it's interesting to think about i don't think i don't think that you know that that kind of science fiction right now is going to be fiction much longer i think that in our lifetime you know at the rate that technology is is exponentially growing right now like every year i think they they say at this point technology today by this day next year, it's going to be 10 times what it is right now. And then 10 times the year more. So exponentially, it's growing yeah. at this such a rapid rate. I think in our lifetime, we could see some very promising things like that. I know. That there's, so there's like around 100 billion neurons. And that's just neurons. That's not even the synapses. Mm-hmm. There's probably like 100 trillion of mm-hmm. those. And it would be real. I just mathematically, I don't know. If, could you map that? Yeah. Well, um, I think in a quantum computer you could. Probably. Um, they're still trying to figure out how to build those. Actually, I think I heard that w- they did build one, but it was so big that they couldn't um, feasibly use it for what they wanted to use yeah. it for. But like I said, as technology gets bigger, I think a quantum computer could definitely handle that because a quantum computer takes an infinite amount of possibilities for every single variable and then finds... Um, the solution for every single hmm. equation. That reminds me of this thing I heard a neuroscientist say where if you had a computer like that, that could rewire, like perfectly map a brain in itself and, or hypothetically, it was a hurricane. If it could perfectly model a hurricane down to every atom involved in it, inside, is it, does it get wet? Is there that missing element to it? So mm. I think even if you were to possibly map it, which I don't even think you could because it's just so intricate, even if you could, I don't I don't know if it's still the same. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of like that idea of, you know, if you clone yourself, is it really you? Yeah. I mean, every cell might be identical. Yeah. But is it really you? Exactly. Exactly. Or if if you have a ship and you replace one part and then the next another part over time if you've replaced the whole ship is it still the same ship right and i don't i don't think it is i don't think it is either no and i tell that to my clients too about how you know the body literally regenerates every single cell in your living organism every seven years so every seven years we go through a cycle as human beings where we're completely recycled and we are completely a different person physiologically um, yeah, everything's replaced with the exception of your brain, right? Because there's no way, like, because then Alzheimer's, I don't think, would be a big deal. You could just those cells will just replace themselves. Sure. Right? Uh, yeah, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't know the details of the, of the theory for sure, but um, like I know, like skin cells, obviously, like right. well, heart, cardiac cells. Yeah, like, I know those don't replicate. Well, uh, we do know that. Um, you know, neurogenesis is a real thing, and brain cells, new brain cells grow all the time. Um, yeah. So you would think that old brain cells would have to die off in order to make room for the, f- 
the physical yeah. space yeah. of a new cell, right? Yeah. But at the same time, um, you know, if someone had like a cancer or or a brain tumor, those cells might just recycle back into the tumor cell that they once were, rather than like recycling back into a fresh, healthy cell. Oh, okay. If okay. they weren't given the programming to do that. Oh, okay. Right. So with this neural link, maybe you could. You could reprogram those cells if you do have a brain tumor and say, okay, target these cells. When they regenerate, we're going to regenerate them into healthy metabolic cells or something. Yeah, that you would have to incorporate some chemistry then because you couldn't just do that with electrical stimulus. Well, our bodies are chemical factories. So yeah. maybe maybe tapping into that factory system and, and having our body produce the chemicals needed Yeah. Right, because we have the capability yeah. to produce all that. And that's assuming that the genetics are there to do – all that because there are certain genes where some people's brains are different genetically mm -hmm. you know like APO4 mm -hmm. with Alzheimer's and hypothetically if there were no genetic mutations which is a big hypothetical yeah but then you might have to like look at diet like I think if you're going to do a Neuralink you have to it can't just be Something that they stick in your brain, and I think you're good. Right. I think you have to supplement it with other things, whether that be exercise, diet, all those. I don't know. I Elon Musk is really smart, obviously, but I lean more towards he's biting off more than he can chew. Because <laughs> there are people with their PhDs that I know who are just wicked smart. And when I ask a question... Most of the time, it's, I don't know. And that's a good answer. Yeah. It's a great answer. Yeah. I wish more people would say that. Yeah. Rather than say, oh, I know everything. Or I know, yeah. I know for a fact that this is real. Yeah. And I think with Elon Musk, him being an engineer, and even though I'm sure he's read probably even more than me, the neuroscience behind it, I think it's a little much. Maybe you could do something with driving cars, but I think... Other than like outgoing commands, sure, that's like where out, that ends. Yeah. Outgoing commands to like control machinery, yeah. something like that. Yeah, I think that's yeah. where that would have to end. I don't know if you could, but I again, I think it's possible. Maybe yeah. not. With yeah, the current I mean, if you would have told someone a hundred years ago yeah. that a cell phone would be a thing, they wouldn't even comprehend what yeah. that means. Be like, that's never gonna happen. Yeah, why we're riding horses for Christ's mm -hmm. sake? Like, we can't talk to someone in india mm -hmm. so you're probably but right now i it's it's just a lot mm -hmm. to think about yeah and that sucks because i wish i could sit here and be like oh no i know that this they just got to do this or this but i don't and i don't yeah. and i think most people even in this field don't mm -hmm. one of my favorite realizations that i think i've come to in the last couple of years um has sort of you know, disillusioned a lot of science for me. Yeah. Um, I've always been a big proponent of science. I still believe in the validity of science. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of um, our culture views science almost like a religion. Um, yes. Instead of a tool, and it and that's to me that's what science is. Science is a tool, just like any other tool. Yeah. Um, and science as a tool is not necessarily the best tool to study everything out there, right? Maybe consciousness is one of those things that science is just not the right tool to study. And so I find other tools like 
psychedelic medicines like meditation as a tool to explore this intangible thing right science is great at studying the tangible yeah. and collecting data right yeah. but we have no idea how to study the intangible yeah and so maybe science is the wrong tool and we need to tap into other tools so i, I like to use psychedelics and meditation like i said to explore the realm of consciousness and try and bring back what information i can and share it to the audience to to help help them understand that you know like you said at the beginning of the first segment you know sometimes people ostracize themselves in their mind when really there's no reason to ostracize yourself from anybody because we're all doing the same thing we're all having this dialogue whether you're going to admit it or not that you're talking to yourself in your head yeah we're all doing it so why ostracize yourself yeah i agree i uh i remember i took shrooms one time and i was terrified to do it and all almost all my friends were there were a couple that did it with me terrified before you took it yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and even after and while I was under the influence of psilocybin, it is hard for me to argue that everything is strictly scientific. Right now, that's kind of how I view it. But then I look back then, I'm like, I swear I thought I could talk to God. And there has to be something behind that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I guess you can try to boil it down. Well, that's just extra serotonin going on or it's this or that. Maybe not. I mean, we can't even research that stuff mm-hmm. right now. So how could you possibly say, like, yeah, that's that's just excess serotonin going on in your mm-hmm. brain? You know, maybe it is tapping into some collective unconscious. Maybe that is where stories came from. Mm-hmm. But I think people are so scared of that experience, like whether like therapy. It's like, oh, shrooms? I'm not, I can't touch that. Mm-hmm. That'll next thing you know, it's heroin. Right. That'll unlock something that yeah. I'll be terrified of. Yeah. And I think science kind of does that, too. Mm-hmm. I love science, you know. I want to be a scientist. Yeah, me too. But it's... The way science has become... I don't think it's people doing experiments back in the 1700s trying to gain knowledge or because they're curious. I think science now is... Yeah, it's more of a religion. I mean, look at diet. Ask someone if vegan is healthy. Yeah. You know... You might have to like put your hands up for a fight. Like it's crazy. So if we can't even agree on like what we eat, what's good mm-hmm. to just consume, how could you possibly have a in-depth conversation about stuff like right and come to a consensus and come to a consensus? Yeah, yeah. about anything: religion, work, family, yeah, values, yeah. Anything like that. Yeah, it's really hard. And like, I think a lot of people, and I notice this a lot of times with the people I'm around, where there's very few conversations, there's very few few discussions, it's debates. It's mm. who's right, who's wrong. And they stick their flag in that ground and you could explain to them a billion times, you could do thought right. experiments, you could do real experiments, and nothing's going to change your mind. And the basis of any debate in that sense where people are holding their ground is... The reason I think the whole motivation by holding your ground is to validate your perception of this conscious experience that you're having, right? Yeah. So two people come and have a debate about one topic, um, and both feel that they're right, right? Because their yeah. their perception, their conscious perception of the of the topic that they're debating is solidified in their viewpoint. 
Yeah. Uh, they can't possibly see the other person's being right. But then you you know a third person observer walks up to the to the debate and sees that both sides are right. Mm-hmm. Both sides have pros and cons. Yeah. You know both sides are are equally valid, um, but they maintain the flexibility to see both sides. Whereas yeah. as in the debate, I think it's people trying to say. My reality is the reality. Yeah. My reality is real. And if it's not real, if my idea is not real, then my whole world is going to be shattered for some reason, right? So I'm yeah. going to stick to this and I'm going to I'm going to fight tooth and nail to prove my point to you and change your yeah. mind because your reality is false. Yeah. Right? But all reality is and this is goes back to the theory of the mind. I took a philosophy of mind class uh, once it was really interesting and part of the theory of the mind um says that um well I'm, I'm probably gonna totally butcher this so maybe I, I won't get too deep into it um but that all reality is just our perception right so everything i perceive i perceive as real everything you perceive yeah. you perceive as real so in these psychedelic experiences like the mushroom experience you had where you said i swear i talked to god or i had an open direct communication yeah. a line of communication to him that was your per- perceived reality in that moment at that time. So who's to say that that's not real? I totally agree. Right? Someone who's never experienced that, who wasn't there with you, can say that wasn't real and can say, you know, that was, a, halluc- right, that was yeah. a hallucination. You weren't really seeing that. But yeah. that was your reality. That was real. Yeah. And even if science can't prove that you had an open, direct communication line to God, you know in your heart, yeah. in your consciousness, in your DNA, that that shit happened. Yeah. That was real. Exactly. And I think, like you said, yeah, it's, it's most of the time it's this person one way, another person the other way. And it takes that third person to go, well, okay, you're right here, and you're right here, but you're also wrong here, and yeah, you're wrong here. And that's the whole point of college, mm-hmm. is to get that disconfirmation, you know? Because if everything was just an echo chamber, we're not going to grow. You know, if you and I disagree on everything, I'm not gaining anything. Neither one of us are growing. Yeah, exactly. And, but conversations like this where we're hashing difficult things out, that's how you grow. And whether it's therapy or hallucinogens or what's consciousness, Mm -hmm. you know, I think people, and that's where you would come in. Like, how do you come to that point where... You do like people come to this point where they realize, okay, I'm limiting myself. Do they do they come to you for that? Or? Yeah. Um, so I mean, that's that's a good question. Thanks for asking it. Um, and that's what I do in my private practice. Is I mean, my specialty and my real passion in my private practice is human optimization by optimizing the mind, and that's a big, overarching umbrella statement, yeah. right? Yeah. So we look at optimizing things like uh, optimizing individual thoughts, recognizing automatic thought patterns and changing them, optimizing your thought patterns to um, drive you closer to your goals rather than hold you back from your goals, Yeah. optimizing focus, optimizing attention, optimizing um, mental energy expenditure. What are, you, what are you spending your mental energy on during the day? Are you spending it on mostly negative self-talk or positive self-talk? How's that really working for you? Yeah. You know, um, we, we work on things like goal setting, vision, um, you know, making sure that you have a very clear vision of what it's going to feel like and what it's going to be like when you achieve your dreams. Because if you don't have a vision, you're just shooting in the dark, right? Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of what I do is optimizing people's minds so that they can finally start to tap into those innate potentials that they have 
most people will come to me, unfortunately, in the mental health field, most people come to me when there's a crisis. Yeah. When something is terribly wrong and their life is falling apart, that's when people most reach out. What I would prefer to see is people... I would prefer to see everybody in therapy on a, re- totally on a regular agree. weekly basis just yep. as maintenance, yeah. right? Just keep maintenance up and then you don't have to worry about catastrophic events. Yeah. But I do have clients who come to me and they're oftentimes my favorite clients who come to me and they're saying, life is great. You know, I'm achieving all my goals, but yeah. there's this one little area that I'm just, I, I don't have an answer for and I can't zero in on it yeah. and I can't figure this little piece out. And then I help them dig into like what you know what's the cause, uh, what are the manifestations currently? How can we change this yeah. behavior? And then we have very real scientific, scientifically validated tools to change those things for them. Yeah. So then and then we monitor with data collection and and track it over time progress, okay. and then we make minor adjustments. Yeah, I noticed the reason I went to therapy at first was I would have these dreams of my girlfriend cheating on me, mm-hmm. and. I know for a fact my girlfriend in a billion years would never cheat on Those me. are the worst dreams, right? Yeah. Those, <laughs> I would wake up in a panic, pissed mm-hmm. off. Yeah, you wake up and it ruins the rest of your day. Yeah. And then you're a total dick to your girlfriend. The yeah. Next day. yeah like, what did great. I do? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it is those individual thoughts. that it, And that's another thing. People think they see this huge obstacle. Like, how am I going to get over this? Okay, well, just that little thought that you had at the grocery store. Or digging deep. And that is like that conversation with the mind. Ask yourself, well, Mm -hmm. why do I have nightmares of my... I know she's not going to cheat on me. Mm -hmm. Like even logically, I know she's not going to. And I think... So how do you do that? Do you use behavior... Cognitive therapy? Do you use? So I use... uh, I'm what's considered an eclectic therapist. So I... um... Again, like I don't like being in a fixed mindset. So yeah. a lot of people in my field will be trained in one methodology, will just like treat it like a religion. Like this is what works, and that's all they'll do. An eclectic psychotherapist, um, what I do is I remain open again, and I read all the research, and I pick and choose techniques that I think will be useful for a particular individual. So I'm skilled and trained in... A wide range of of techniques, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy, behavior modification, um, dialectical behavioral therapy, um, acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, and there's a whole bunch of different ones, Um, radical compassion, you know, all sorts of things. So depending on the client, when they come to me, I'll do what's called a biopsychosocial interview. So I'll find out, you know, um, I'll ask about their biology. You know, what medicines are you on? What is your medical history? What sort of medical traumas have you experienced? Do you incorporate diet in that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What is your nutritional intake? Uh, What is your supplementation intake? Um, So that's the biological piece. Um, What substances are you using? How are you using them? Biopsycho, so psycho part, I ask about uh, their psychology. So, um, you know, what are what is the common thoughts that you have throughout the day? Um, how were your values and moral systems developed? Um, who were your influences? Um, you know, who are your heroes? Who do you strive to be like? Who do you strive to be not like? Yeah. Like your parents, right? Yeah. So biopsychosocial. And then I, uh, I also assess their social components. So are you integrated within your community? Do you have... 
support system that's supporting you in your goals? Are you in an intimate relationship? Do you have pets? You know, do you take care of plants? You know, all these are social interactions that we have. So I do a full assessment at first and based on all these factors as well as how the because a lot of therapists don't like to touch on spiritual topics. I'm the exact opposite. So that's a big component of my interview process. So I ask about what is your framework for spirituality, if you have any. And based on all that information, I can pick and choose which techniques, based on the on the evidence, I think would work best for them. And by spirituality, I just and I'm pretty confident. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily mean religion. Absolutely not. Okay. Okay. Now, so organized okay. religion is a form of spirituality. Yeah. But I encounter more people than I don't who practice non-religious spirituality. Yeah. So connection to nature. For me, personally, it's a connection to um, the universal energy that we're all made out of. Um, You know, nature, Wiccanism, paganism, Christianity, Catholicism, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, all these different religions view spirituality and life and death and reality differently. So based on that, I have to approach it from their framework, right? Like if you come to me and you're an Islamic, um, you know, if you're a Muslim and you come to me, I can't start spouting a bunch of Buddhist concepts at you because it's not going to yeah. hit home. So in in college, I, I made an effort to take a bunch of spiritual classes to, to sort of study the world religions so that I have at least some framework yeah. to go off of. I need to understand where is this person coming yeah. from. I wish that's how college was, at least for the hard sciences. As a neuroscience major, you, you know, you have to do the OCHEMs, sure. the physics. The core the, uh, requirements, yeah. right. And, yeah, there's some electives in there, but not much. Mm-hmm. Like, I would have loved to at least minor in philosophy. Mm-hmm. But in today's climate, I feel like it's either you're sciencey or you're artsy. Right. And that's I like that you do that, where you incorporate that philosophical touch, that artsy kind of touch, mm-hmm. while still maintaining, like, the scientific method. Yeah, I have to maintain the scientific rigor because... I'm dealing with clients here in the West that highly value scientific method. Yeah. Right? So if I tell them to just go out and meditate, they're going to be like, this guy's hippy-dippy full of shit. I'm not yeah. going to do what he says. But if I come to them and say, hey, here's a bunch of scientific articles showing how m- mindfulness and meditation will improve your cognition, it'll improve your focus, oh, yeah. and, you know, and they see the science, then they're going to be like, oh, shit, this is, this is yeah, real. I think I, I read this. a study that said... Even just after eight weeks yeah. of meditation, you can see physical changes in the brain yep. in fMRI. Yeah, throughout the body. Yeah, like. Mm-hmm. But how do you think? Do those changes? Do, are they maintained? Yeah, it's a. Or is it like a, you have to maintain? It's a maintenance it thing. Yeah. Okay. It's a maintenance thing. So um, over long periods of time, you can create permanent change. Okay. Um, but it's just like you know if you're. If you're walking back and forth in your house along the same path, it's going to take some time, but over a couple of years, that patch of carpet's going to be worn down, right? Yeah. Or okay. like if you're sledding down a hill and you keep going down the same route, it's going to get deeper and deeper and deeper and more entrenched, harder for you to jump outside those lines, Okay. right? But yeah. at first, it requires maintenance. It requires you to course correct and re-steer back onto the path. It, how hard is that to do in like our Western culture? It's... It depends on the person. Um, for some people, it could be extremely difficult. Um, 
for some people it's easy um but again it's all based on perspective so you know someone who had like a if if an athlete comes to me and they're a high achiever and a perfectionist and achieve they achieve everything they put their mind to it's easy for me to assign them a task uh, like a, an intervention and for them to follow through with it and to make those changes um but if someone has no framework like that, if someone does not have any experience with hard work ethic or anything, I might have to first train them in mindfulness. Like, hey, let's start paying attention a little bit more to your thoughts. Yeah. Let's pay attention to your emotions. Instead of running away from them yeah. or pushing them down or drowning them out with booze yeah. or drugs, how about we stop what we're doing and just listen a little bit more? Yeah. Um, because our, our intuition is, is amazing. I'm sure you know in neurochemistry, like... The, the double brain paradigm, right? Yeah. Our physical brain in our head and our gut brain. Yeah. And how the gut brain actually has way more neurotransmitters in it than our physical yeah. brain does. Yeah. Um, so being able to integrate like, and that's a felt sense, right? That's a felt mind. You feel your intuition, those gut feelings that you yeah. get. And a lot of people just ignore that shit, right? Yeah. And in favor of this cognitive mind. Yeah. But it makes sense that if most of our communication is happening down in our gut, yeah. We need to be listening to that like 80% of the time and our cognitive brain 20% or yeah. something like that. I think right now in the field of neuroscience, it's start, it's gaining popularity, but there are still those people where the gut biome, like what does that have to do with anything? They could have a degree in neuroscience. You know, that's just the vagus nerve stimulating the gut. That's nothing, you know. Then, but just eating fermented foods, for instance... Mm-hmm. has been shown to help depression you know Callie talks about that all yeah. the time she says that even people experts in her field don't believe that the gut biome is a thing that's crazy you know? and I see it in my field too like I went to CU Boulder and got my undergrad there and it was a highly um, Freudian uh, experience so a lot of a lot of my basic psych courses were teaching Freudian theories um, which some of those are good, but some, some, maybe like 20%. Yeah. Right. So the emphasis in my mind should not have been on that. So I get out of college and I realized that all these professors I was learning from are stuck in that paradigm. They're unwilling to change based on new realizations. Right. So I had to go seek that out myself. I had to go seek out the spiritual classes. I had to go real read Carl Jung on my own. I had to go read Nietzsche and Plato and Aristotle because my teachers weren't going to teach me that stuff. They wanted yeah. me to be trained in, in their way, in their methodology. Yeah. I did the same thing where I chose behavior and cognitive because I was like, oh, I get to learn about people, the human experience. Yeah. Well, no, if I zap you enough times while I play a horn, <laughs> when I play the horn, you're going to freak out. I had to go read you and on my own. I had to read Nietzsche. And it, I wasn't getting this in school. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to, I feel like if you're going to do behavior and cognitive, especially, you have to incorporate some philosophical approach to it. Because I feel like you're robbing yourself, one. And if you, two, you're just not prepared. Like, I've tried to have conversations about consciousness or dreams. Just talk about dreams. What's a dream? Mm-hmm. You know? Most of the time, you're going to get, oh, it's just a chemical reaction that happens. It's nothing. And that functional fixedness of no it's science it's this it's that we know this i don't know if 
can we get over that? Mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a matter of changing the question. So I think the question in science that we're asking too frequently is how. How is this happening? So I had a dream. How did that happen? Oh, chemical yeah. things in your brain, right? Um, you know, whatever you're studying. How, how does that happen? What's the me- mechanism of action, right? And we're, we're limiting, we're capping our knowledge there. Yeah. This is how it happens. But I think the deeper question and where philosophy takes it is changes the question to why. So I had a dream, and this happened in the dream. I'm not so worried about how that happened, but I want to know why. Yeah. Why did I have that dream? Yeah. Why did that all of a sudden pop up now? You know. And I feel like philosophy digs into that a little bit deeper, the why behind it. Yeah. You, know? you want to study human, human consciousness and human experience. We want to know how that works. Right. Maybe so we can replicate it. Maybe so we can fix things. Maybe so we can enhance things. But I think the deeper question is why? Why do we even have consciousness? Why does it even exist? Yeah. What is the purpose behind it? And from what I've learned, the typical answer, which even I sometimes throw out like I did in the beginning, is, well, we're just primates who have a lot of neurons. (laughs) And so it's almost it's just like random. Yeah. Yeah. Just random evolution you know and the dangerous thing about that is it becomes a dogma you can't question it and even i even though i kind of believe that after taking shrooms it's hard to imagine that yeah maybe there isn't some non-metaphysical element to it in that like yeah there's serotonin going on all this time but maybe there is something that we are tapping into and it's hard to do that especially in today because the further we get into science the more i think we are this we are we are asking the how mm-hmm. it's not the why mm-hmm. you know and it's people are i think they're pe- people are scared mm-hmm. you know like there's no reason i think hallucinogens should be illegal right i don't think there should be and i think people are like well no that's just hippy dippy bullshit yeah, you take some shrooms, go walk in the forest. Yeah, that'll do you a lot of good. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. That's a you question, I feel like. Sure. And those people that give me those answers, in my head, um, you know, it used to trigger something in me where I would feel like this desire to spout out a bunch of research and say, like, oh, these yeah. are, you know, this is what how it does help. But now in my head, you know, I'm finding, and you probably heard this on another podcast, but I, I try and avoid surface level conversations with people yeah because it seems like a waste of energy and a waste of time for me yeah um and if someone is not willing to have an open mind about something um it's a waste of energy for me to try and debate them on it yeah and so in my mind when people say that to me like oh it's just gonna yeah that'll do you a lot of good i I just like in my head I, i repeat this thing i'm just like i just chalk it up to ignorance there's nothing wrong with that you just yeah. don't know. Yeah. And what what they don't realize is that, yeah, the hippies used it, but that's only in its most recent incarnation. Like, for the past, for all of human history, since before language, since before, you know, caveman times, yeah. um, we were ingesting um, psychoactive substances that we would find in nature, whether it be mushrooms or fungus or... Uh, psychedelic honeys in in the himalayas you know people have been going on these consciousness journeys within themselves for millennia far before science was even a thing 
you know, and they've been helping and they've been healing and to be so close minded as to say, you know, they're not, they're not going to help. So we're just going to outlaw them. It's a, it's such a, it's, it's almost like a human rights violation almost. That's what it feels like to me. It feels like part of our, part of our culture, part of our humanness is being ripped away. We're not, we're not being allowed to, um, explore the most sacred part of ourself, which is our own consciousness. Yeah. I, that's the thing I see with some of my friends when I'm telling them about hallucinogens and they just have this fear, this intense fear that, oh, well, if I do that, then next thing you know, yeah, I'm doing heroin in an alley. And it's, no, just trust me, it's good. You are robbing yourself mm-hmm. of this. You know, one of the people I did shroom, the shroom experience with was so close-minded about it and then she allowed herself to try it and... To this day, it's probably one of... I, she's told mm-hmm. me it's one of the best experiences she's ever had. That's probably the most commonly reported phrase from people in the uh, psilocybin trials, the official scientific studies, yeah. is that this is one of the top um, five most life-changing experiences that they've ever had. Yeah, it's definitely for me. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And for those of you out there who are listening who might have this twinge uh you know that if i try this it's going to lead to bigger and and worse things um science is very clear on this that these drugs are non-addictive um non-toxic i think psilocybin is one of the least toxic substances on the planet um especially compared to things that we regularly imbibe like sugar yeah alcohol sugar tobacco these things are way more toxic um but a lot of these psychedelic medicines are useful in the treatment of addictions. Um, they help people get off of hard drugs. They help people get off of stimulants and opiates and alcohol oh, yeah. and tobacco. And there's studies out there to show that stuff. You guys can go look that up on Google if you want. Yeah, there was a study done where terminally ill patients were given one dose of psilocybin. Mm-hmm. And after their experience, I think like 80% of them we're cool with dying. Yeah, the fear of death is almost lifted. Because, yeah. And you'll, you'll account to this too, but when you're in those spaces, it feels like, like this is what I'm going to return to when I die. Right? Yeah. Like this space that I'm in right now while I'm in this psychedelic experience is something I'm familiar with. I've been here before. I've been here a million times. Yeah. I know this place. It, it, and it's yeah, welcoming. Yeah, that is what I felt It's like. welcoming. It's loving. It's like, welcome back. We're going to show you what you've been missing, and then we'll zoom you back to your yeah. body. It felt like I had returned to a dream I had already had, right. but I was consciously aware. Exactly. And so we have these experiences where we almost get a glimpse of what's coming after death. And so when yeah. you return back to your human self, uh, most of these people report um, a lot of that anxiety around death just kind of fizzling yeah. off. It's funny you say that because when we did it, it was around uh, October. And it was, like, fall outside. And we, like, walked down this nature path, and we were walking back home. And I remember thinking it was Halloween-ish. And I remember thinking, like, there could be a killer at my house, like Mike Myers. <laughs> and he's probably going to kill me. But it's cool. It's cool, man. Yeah, it's cool. Like, <laughs> all right, I guess it is what it is. And telling people that, they look at me like, I'm speaking in tongues. I'm like, no, like, they're like, you thought you were going to die, and you were cool with that? Yeah. It was kind of whatever it was like i feel like okay it's my time whatever and since that i did that my life is dramatically changed Mm -hmm. i look at things differently i'm more open 
I'm not scared of as many things, you know? It sounds like you're living more fully yeah, because I of would, it. Yeah, I would. And I think the people I did it with would say the same thing because we've talked about that. And it sucks because people are just scared to take that first step. I'm not saying take 10 dabs of acid. <laughs> like, you don't need to jump into the deep end of the pool. Mm-hmm. But that initial experience of a little psilocybin, I mean... And a thing I also get a lot is, well, you're a neuroscience major. Like, that stuff's bad for your brain. But like you said... It's not. No, it's not. Actually, it's healthy for my brain. It's regrowing brain cells. It's forming new connections. Yeah. It's helping my brain chemistry and my hemispheres communicate more effectively. Yeah. And it's good for my mental health, mm-hmm. you know? It's, like, I'm sure you know that Absolutely. it's so effective for depression. Mm-hmm. So effective. Mm-hmm. But that functional fix, fixing this, that's a fickle bitch. I know. It is, you know, it's... It's almost, it's like a habitual way of thinking. You know, people, yeah. people just like getting addicted to substances. They get addicted to thinking certain ways. Yeah. They get addicted to uh, certain emotions. Yeah. They may be feeling anger for a, a period of their lives, a number of years, or grief after a death of a loved one. Yeah. And that becomes their norm. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, they feel scared to even move out of that, you know. Um, I see that all the time in my field, people becoming, I see this more and more, people becoming super dependent on their mental health medications. So like, maybe they've had depression their whole life and they've been on this med that works to help with the symptoms, doesn't cure the depression by any means. Oh yeah. Um, That requires therapy and really digging under the surface to its root causes and resolving those issues. But so they'll get on these meds and it will relieve the symptoms and they'll feel a little bit better. But then without the meds, they go back into the depressive state. So then they get this dependence on the medication. They're like, I am depressed. And they self-identify as that and nothing else. Yeah. And it's very difficult to say to these people, you know, you don't have to be depressed. Yeah. If you don't want to. Yeah. You know, and they're like, no, this is who I am. I'm bipolar. I'm bipolar forever. I have to have these meds. If I don't have them, I'm going to freak out. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's really... It's a shame. It's sad. Yeah, and me. I think that's just a sign of Western culture. Well, it's, yeah, and especially... Well, you're sick, the... here's a pill. Mm-hmm. Which, don't get me wrong, like, getting rid of, like, polio is great. Yeah. That is where Western medicine kills it, knocks yeah. it out of the park. But it's those day-to-day mm-hmm. interactions where, oh, I'm not feeling great. Oh, okay, well, here's mm-hmm. SSRI. That'll make you feel better. Right, like, it's not okay to not feel okay. Yeah. So like, I don't feel okay. Therefore, I have to. I have to change it. Yeah. I have to feel good all the time, hundred yeah. percent of the time. That's not yeah. reality. That's not. You know, if you're happy all the time, you're only feeling half of the human spectrum of emotions. Yeah. You're only half a human. You know. Yeah. That's like, in my opinion, one of when you are in a relationship and you break up, even if it was a horrible relationship. That feeling, that gut feeling of, oh, this sucks so much. But it's cool because it's like, oh, well, it only sucks so much because it was so great. Because it was so good. Yeah. Like, it was so good. And that's why it sucks mm-hmm. so much. And if you rob yourself of those moments, yep. I think you're just... Well, I hear from injustice. my clients, too, who are on even, um, you know, common antidepressants, Wellbutrin, Prozac, these types of things. Like, yeah. yeah, it reduces your depressive symptoms, makes you feel less bad about yourself. But it also limits the amount of good feelings you can have. So if you had like this wide spectrum of yeah. both positive and negative emotions, it cuts like a third 
off of each end of that. So now yeah. you have a very narrow range of emotions, a very limited bandwidth of what you can experience. And so people will say like, yeah, the meds make me not depressed, but I feel like a zombie, you know? Yeah. The things that, that I used to love don't bring me pleasure anymore, you know? Uh, that's called anhedonia. So, yeah. you know, things like that happen on these meds too. And it's, you know, it's a shame because these people are limiting their fullest potential by becoming psychologically dependent on these medications yeah. too. Instead of just learning simple, like, because in my time of therapy, it's the littlest things that if I were to tell you, oh, I just, when someone says something I don't like and I have that initial knee-jerk mm -hmm. reaction in my brain, I'm like, oh, well, logically, they're not asking me how I did on this test to rub it in my face. They want to know how I just did on the test. Mm -hmm. And it's those little things over time, that maintenance, like you said, just builds up. You don't need to lessen the symptom if you just start with these little steps. Mm -hmm. You get rid of the bigger issue. Yep. So the technique you're, you're describing is called thought replacement. Yeah. So first, it involves some mindfulness, right? Knowing that there's a problem in the first place. Mm -hmm. You can't change a problem unless you know there's a problem. Yeah. So recognizing that you have those thoughts saying... Um, how dare this person ask me? What are they trying to get one up on me? Exactly. Are they trying to brag? You know, noticing yeah. those thoughts first and being mindful of them. And then once you notice them, almost catching them like in a butterfly net. You catch yeah. the thought, you put that thought away, and then you actively replace it with something more productive. Right? Yeah. So thought replacement. So recognizing, catching it, putting that one aside, saying that's not useful, and then implementing or implanting a more useful thought. Yeah. So for you in that scenario, you know, catching the thought and then replacing it right away with saying, this person genuinely cares about me and they want to know how I did. You know, maybe yeah. they want to help me with studying. Yeah. Much more productive thought. Yeah, there's right? no, it doesn't have to be malevolent. No. Yeah. And what was, what's so cool is the first week I did it, it would take literally mm -hmm. a couple seconds for that to occur. It takes a lot of mental effort. If yeah. It's, just it like does. a new workout routine. Exactly. But Right now, I've been going to therapy for mm -hmm. a couple months. Oh, it's it's not instantaneous. There sure. is always going to be that knee-jerk reaction, but that thought's not shot right away. Yeah. It's like, oh, that I remember when that like would trigger me, but I get why they asked. Yeah. It's the same exact process for overcoming things like addiction. Yeah. You know, replacing those thoughts when you're triggered by something, a stimulus in your environment that causes an addictive type thought. It's a matter of recognizing it, catching it, and replacing it with a more productive thought towards sobriety or abstinence or whatever you're going for. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're using these techniques really well. Uh, I'm trying. Mm -hmm. And it's just practice. It's like jujitsu, it, it, right? It's just practice. It's like the first couple times you did an armbar, it was so clunky, and you're like, oh, man, it takes so much mental and physical effort to just yeah. do this movement. But then you do it a hundred times, you do it a thousand times, and then... It becomes easier every single time, every single time until it becomes automatic and yeah. you don't even have to have a thought. It becomes, it gets to a point actually where if you have a thought about the arm bar, the thought itself gets in the way of you performing the arm bar, right? Exactly. And that's a lot of the work that I do too in, in my private practice is helping people get out of their own way, right? So they're, they, maybe they want to change this athletic piece of, or this, they want to change their focus, um, but the more they focus on it, the more it gets in the way. So I teach people how to get out of their own way, how to stop thinking so hard about it and just let them, let their bodies and minds do what they have intentionally trained into it. Right. Yeah. And you'll learn that too, as you get, 
deeper into jujitsu and and further along your path is that the less thinking you do, the better you'll perform. I I agree. I, I know when uh, I started jujitsu, I wrestled in high school, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, no one, I don't care if they're a black belt, I'll just take them down and I'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And you take them down, you just get murked immediately, <laughs> omoplata, whatever, just immediately, and then. You get into jiu-jitsu and you're like, oh my god, I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And the further along you get, now you know, like, my day one at Z's six months ago, if you would have asked me, you know, like, for triple threat, grab the wrist, bring it over the head, I I had to go through that process. Like, when I was rolling, I was like, okay, I gotta make sure I grab that wrist. Mm-hmm. Now, like today, when I was rolling, immediately, mm-hmm. just getting it. And then I was like, oh! Look where I'm at. I didn't even mm-hmm. realize I'm there. Or Zeke could shout it from the side of the mat and say, Cody, triple threat. And you don't have to run through your Rolodex yeah. of what that is. It's just like, okay, boom, I know what that is. Yeah, and that's only six months mm-hmm. of honestly inconsistent training. So if people are doing these little tasks every day, mm-hmm. 10 times a day, mm-hmm. or even just once a day, exponentially just adds and so for people who don't really have experience in training their mind yeah i liken it to training the body okay so when you're training your body it's all about repetition yeah doing reps biomechanics muscle memory things like that that's how your body remembers your mind is the same way so if you're putting in you know hundreds and hundreds of reps every day in the gym for your physical self how many mental reps are you doing a day right yeah and that's how i really try and break it down for clients so that they can understand it is you know your mind controls your body your body doesn't necessarily control your mind so why are we not training the mind as much if not more than we are the body you can be doing mental reps and you could be training 12 hours more than you are a day outside the gym yeah as long as you're doing mental reps if you're doing your meditations if you're doing your thought replacement if you're doing perspective shifting throughout the day if you're looking for the good and maintaining gratitude and positive attitude amidst chaos you know all these are mental reps and we know very clear from the science too it takes ten thousand repetitions to become an expert at anything yeah which is what you're starting to notice you're once you started therapy you've gotten a couple hundred reps under your belt now when you get up to that ten thousand mark it's going to be automatic you may have that thought creep in for a split second but right away your brain will have this newly wired path that is more effective for it and so it will go towards that as you begin begin to gain that expertise over your own mind yeah i yeah people like working out a lot of people work out but they don't do that mental game and as someone who wrestled and did jiu-jitsu you know that the mental game is 90% of the game. Yeah, you need to like work out and you got to be strong. You got to be somewhat fit. Mm-hmm. But if you have someone who's in mediocre shape but just a dog mentally, mm-hmm. they're going to smash anyone mm-hmm. who can do a thousand sit-ups but doesn't practice that mental game. Mm-hmm. And if only people realize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people only barely know what their own true potentials are. Yeah. And it's, it can be challenging sometimes for me to sit with a client and for me to see the full potential and who they are and who they could be yeah. based on what I know yeah, um, just about human beings and consciousness and that they don't see it themselves. That's so hard. Um, it's so hard. And so I think the best thing I can do rather than trying to convince people 
of their potential is just to lead by example and just to try and do self experiments on my on my own mind all the time yeah. to try and live out this life of human potential that I'm trying to promote. Yeah. And then others will see that in me and be like, that's what I want. I want that. How do you do that? Yeah. You know, and then they're open. Then they're finally open to hearing the suggestion. You know, if they're not open and I try and educate, sometimes I come up against a wall. You can lead a horse to water. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cody, I wanted to, I want to thank you again for, for staying for an extra segment. That's well, awesome. Yeah, thank you so much mm-hmm. for having me. This was super fun and cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to have you back on future episodes if you Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I feel like, yeah, there's a, a lot of things we can continue to talk, and hopefully you'll be one of my um, returning guests pretty frequently. I would love that. Good. Um, so for those of you listening out there, um, if you want to leave any comments or questions for myself or my guests, you can do so, uh, I think on the podcast app itself, or you can go to my website, mindops.com. That's M I N D hyphen O P S.com and leave your comments and questions there. And I'll pass them along to Cody. If you want to come meet us in person and talk to us, you can always find us at Z's training gym Monday through Friday, usually in the evenings and Sundays for open mats. Come join us. Um, please like and share um, the podcast. Again, that's how these messages really get out. That's how we can uh, impact the most people is through that ripple effect that we all have. You know, um, I have a certain number of friends on my social media, and I can impact that many people. But if everybody shares it at least once, you know, exponentially, we'll get this message out. And hopefully, like Cody and I were talking about, hopefully we can create some sort of positive shift in the consciousness of all of humanity so that we can finally start to get over this fixed mindedness that we, we find ourselves stuck in. Um, and if we continue down this path, unfortunately it may lead to our self-destruction as a species. So we really need this guys. And if, if we want this to continue on and be beneficial for future generations, we need your help. So take some action today, be be your own activist in this sense. And all you got to do is push a button, just like or share our post. Uh, so we appreciate it. Um, come back next time. Uh, we're going to be putting out a couple new podcasts in the coming weeks. Sorry again for the absence. Uh, I've been under the weather and sick, um, but I am back in full swing, and I'll try and get these podcasts out more regularly. Um, come and talk to us. We'd appreciate it. All right, we'll talk to you guys soon. Have a good one, Cody. Thank you, bud.